Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz, we're back with another edition of Happy Hour. I'm happy that we're here for well, the hour. We always, we always try to start off with some happy news, but Liz is feeling a little under the weather today, so. I might have the, the COVID, I don't know. We talked China. about if I should take a test during the podcast, you know, just to really make it sensate, to sensationalize it, our show, but I decided not to. I have like a ton of tests, so I'll do get it after. a bunch of hate. All right, that's good. Well, we can update our listener later. Um, okay, true. So we're going to get right to our special guest today, my friend, Brandon Strzok, who, um, like thousands of Americans... Uh, has had their lives completely upended and almost destroyed by a vengeful, partisan, lawless Justice Department investigating and prosecuting the four-hour disturbance at the Capitol on January 6th. So Brandon has quite the story to tell. We are going to let him do most of the talking. Um, I was happy to connect with Brandon Really, I, I knew who Brandon was, the uh, founder of the Walk Away movement, which he can talk about, uh, which is part of the reason why he was targeted by the Justice Department and the Biden regime. But we um, we never really connected, I think, Brandon, until after your arrest and then just sort of kept in touch, you know, all the way after that and until your uh, plea and then hearing. And now here you are. So Liz and I are very Happy to have you join us today and to tell your horrific story of what you've been through the past 13 months. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on to talk. And yeah, it's true. I think I actually reached out to you probably four to five months after my arrest. I was one of the first people arrested uh, January 25th of uh, 2021. And uh, I'm glad I reached out to you because as it turns out, uh, you and I have kept in touch since I first reached out on a pretty regular basis. And besides this horrific and frankly stupid topic of January 6th, um, I've come to find you to be a very lovely person. And it turns out we have the same taste in T-shirts and many other things. So <laughs> it's been it's been good getting to know you. I wish it was under different circumstances, but. Well, this was okay. And just for our listeners, Brandon has on Def, a Def Leppard t-shirt. As our loyal listeners know, my favorite band from the 80s. So we know that Brandon not only has the right political views and is tough <laughs> as hell, but also has good taste in music. Oh, okay. Before we start, though, Brandon, Liz, I got to ask him. You oh, God. I know the question. Who do you prefer as the front man for Van Halen? David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? Oh, I feel like this is a trick question that's going to get me in trouble, but just trust me that I have my reasons that it's David Lee Roth. Thank oh, you. All right. God. Is that okay? That's good. Damn okay. it. It is. It's with me, not with Julie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I had a, I could tell, I could literally tell just by the inflection in her voice where this was headed. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you have to understand that for me, that it's an emotional tie to sort of the advent of MTV and that, I mean, so to me, that's sort of what it's all about. Like, I used to love to watch those videos back in the 80s and, you know, yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Well, Liz, you go ahead. I'm, I'm going to log off now. No, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Brandon, let's start with, let's start with, first of all, how you launched the walkaway movement, 
you really grew this on your own, a phenomenal movement um, that, you know, led to all kinds of followers for you and influence. So let's talk a little bit about how that started and then led leading up to the events of January 6th. Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, I'm so, Julie, repeat the question. I'm sorry. I think I started thinking about uh, Def Leppard again or something. That's okay. We do that too. So how explain <laughs> how you started the walk away movement. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I think just for a background. Sure, sure, sure. So, it, I, you know, I was a lifelong liberal. And um, in 2016, I, you know, I was a two time Obama voter. And then in 2016, I uh, was a big Hillary Clinton supporter. And uh, a, a big I trusted, you know, media sources like CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times. And for people who don't, you know, really know who I am or know my story. Um, you know, I, I'm a gay man. And that to me is, I think, was the most influential thing in why I politically aligned the way that I did, because I was just like any other kind of typical minority in this country, feeling like there is no choice. Like if you're black or brown or a, a religious minority or if you're LGBT or whatever, you have to be a Democrat and you have to be a liberal in the belief system, which is reinforced constantly by those media sources is that Republicans hate you, that there is no seat at the table for anybody who isn't basically a straight white man. And um, and then that's the the messaging that we receive through Hollywood, through the music industry, through and now everything. I mean, it's it's spilled over into everything at this point. And uh, I'm almost getting off topic just with that. But with what I've gone through in the last year, I'm realizing so much that it's not just uh, the entertainment industry and academia and the news media and social media, but it's also now the criminal justice system, I think, has been completely overtaken by leftist ideology, it seems at this point, or at least that feels like my experience. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. I uh, flash forward to the 2016 election. I voted for Hillary. The media I trusted kept telling me that Donald Trump had like a three percent chance of winning. And that he was, you know, the second coming of Hitler and a racist and a bigot. But, you know, don't really worry about that because he's not going to win. And it's, this is going to be the greatest landslide in American history for Hillary Clinton. And, of course, that's not how things turned out. So I went through several weeks of feeling shattered and confused and angry and and uh, and scared. And <clears throat> so after I went through several weeks of just honestly being totally miserable about how the election turned out, I decided that if I was going to have a, a life and move past this, that I needed to try to understand it. And so I spent several months kind of researching, you know, why would anyone vote for me for Donald Trump? How did the media get it so wrong? And I just started asking a lot of questions and talking to a lot of people I wouldn't have normally ever talked to in the past and watching videos and reading and learning. And th this journey kind of went on throughout 2017 but it was really those formative first like four or five months of 2017 that were just like my mind was being opened and and blown time and time and time again and that ended up leading to me realizing that i was being lied to and manipulated by the democratic party by the liberal media and you know, by the entertainment industry by all of the politicians and the the false narratives about victimhood and um, the victim oppressor ideology and just all of that stuff and so i ended up walking away and then 
toward the end of 2017, because it, it wasn't an overnight switch from like, oh, I'm not I can't be a Democrat anymore. So today I'm going to become a Republican. I actually still hated the Republican Party throughout most of 2017. We, we do, too, by the we way. We do, too. We, we hate well, both okay. them. Well, so that that's like that's like the sequel to my story is that now I hate them again, but for different reasons, <laughs> totally different reasons. Uh, but by the end of 2017, I had completely come around to Trump and the Republican Party and, uh, you know, changed my voter registration to Republican and became an out loud and proud Trump supporter. And then in 2018, I was so overzealous with excitement about this radical change in my life that I just wanted more people to see what I was seeing and 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 wake up and think for themselves and come to this opinion realization. So I put out a six minute video in May of 2018 talking about all of the reasons why I was walking away from liberalism in the Democratic Party. And I started a Facebook group called the hashtag walkaway campaign. And I encouraged other people to make their own videos and their own written testimonials telling their stories about why they were feeling the same way and to kind of build this network and community of people who were having this experience. And it was never about, you know, walk away and become a Republican or walk away and become a Trump supporter. It was just we all used to be Democrats. We used to be liberals. We feel used, lied to, betrayed, abused, what have you, and tell your stories. And it was like an explosion out of the gate. I mean, thousands and thousands of videos. We had black people and brown people and white people and straight people and gay people. And I don't want to ever refer to it in the past tense. I mean, it kind of feels like that right now because I had to disappear for an entire year. And at the exact same time, Facebook banned the walkaway campaign. Uh, but the wow. movement hasn't died and we are coming back and we're, and I'm actually creating an autonomous platform for this community and for those testimonials. So in 2022, everything's going to be coming back. And those amazing videos that everybody loved using that hashtag, it's all coming back. Uh, we just have to build back better on a <laughs> platform, <laughs> on a platform that's cancel proof. And that's what we're working on right now. Brandon, did you have, um, what kind of presence did you have on social media before you started that? Or, or did you just really sort of come out of the, sh not I don't want to say shadows, but did you have some sort of platform or did you build it after that video posted and then it just sort of took on a life of its own? Yeah, it was the latter. Um, I had no presence on social media. Wow. So I, I, created, um, I created a Facebook page for Brandon Strzok, uh, different than my, my at the time, uh, personal, you know, just Facebook account. But I built a public page, um, honestly, because at the time, the majority of my friends were still all liberals. And I had begun over the course of 2017 to trickle out posts and questions and things, you know, just that were supportive of Donald Trump and supportive of Republican policies. And my friends were getting really angry and they were unfriending me and sending me all these nasty messages and stuff. So I honestly, it's almost a courtesy to those people. I was like, okay, I'm just going to create my own page. And so that my friends don't have to see those posts. So it had like, like no followers at all, like zero followers. And then I had a Twitter account, which honestly had <clears throat> maybe like 44 Twitter followers, something like wow. that. And I made that video and I put it out and the video within I mean, it went viral like immediately and I was kind of shocked. And it's kind of funny to look back and think that how excited I was 
when it got like a thousand views and two thousand views because <laughs> I had never I mean I had never put out a video in my life that had gotten more than forty views or thirty views or something mm-hmm. like that. So I remember just being like over the moon when I got a thousand or two thousand. But within a week, I think it had hit a million. And then over and then within two weeks, we were at like we I was at like three, four, whatever million. And then it started getting shared everywhere. And I remember that Sarah Palin, I think, was one of the very first people to post it on Twitter and say, this is a must watch. And then it just it kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And then within six weeks, um, I was on the Tucker Carlson show. And that was like a crazy week because so I, I put the video out on May 26th of 2018 and then it was July 2nd that Tucker Carlson had me on and I I think that was like a mon- I think it was a Monday I can't I can't remember but so he had me on on a Monday and then Laura Ingram had me on the next night on a Tuesday and then Charles Payne had me on the next day on a, a Wednesday or I think I'm off by day and then Fox and Friends had me on and then Judge Janine had me so I was on Fox like every day that week and then at that point it was I mean hundreds of thousands of people were doing walk away did how did the president connect with you and his team? Did he finally at some point reach out to you or how did that? I'm sure it just accelerated through 2018, especially after the elections and the Brett Kavanaugh, uh, you know, character assassination. I'm sure you picked up a lot of supporters after that. Um, but at what point then did you connect with either Trump or his people or, you know, anyone in the Republican Party? So, OK, here's the thing. My experience you know, in, I guess, the public eye or the realm of politics has been like a train ride through the twilight zone. So <laughs> I, it, it really, really has, because I think on the one hand, most people who are kind of watching through social media probably assume that this has been like a magic carpet ride with, you know, all the doors have been opened and I've been able to kind of go wherever I wanted to go and do whatever I wanted to do. And that really was not the case. Um, I, I feel like my, so if if you kind of like drew a line, a a horizontal line, and you said that everything below the line or at the line or below is, uh, state level Republican politics, you know, state level Republican parties and everyday Americans who are Republican voters and, and Republican conservative citizens below that line and then everything above that line is federal politics like uh you know congress people senators uh house representative the former administration the president uh and even you know conservative cable news and things like that um everything so below the line it was like i had this sort of ubiquitous support and you know i spent 2019 before everything shut down for covid I was the keynote speaker at, at something like two dozen or more Republican uh, Lincoln dinners and given all these awards for, you know, this state and that state and this state and that state. And, you know, so on the one hand, it was like I was this kind of rock star for everybody below the line. But above the line, it was honestly like radio silent. And it was and it was really, really weird. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I spent years going, why is no one in the RNC contacting us? Like, like mm-hmm. it, it's just so bizarre. And as far as Trump goes, um, he was acknowledging me on Twitter uh, multiple times throughout the years. 
but I was never contacted. And there were a number of events that were done at the White House over the course of years. And I, I hope people can understand and appreciate where I'm coming from when I talk about this, because I think it would be easy for people to feel like it's about ego and, and be like, oh, well, he sounds so entitled or whatever. I don't feel like I'm entitled to a, a visit at the White House or I don't feel like I'm entitled to a phone call from the president. Like, that's not where I'm coming from. But at the same time, there are certain things that took place that kind of felt like a no brainer. And mm -hmm. like one example that I use is the um, in 2019, the White House threw a social media influencer summit for conservatives. And they invited like supposedly all of the kind of who's who of the conservative blue checkmark uh, influencer community. And I wasn't invited. And there were a number of people there who I don't think anyone's really ever heard of. And on I checked and some of them had like less than 5,000 followers. And at that point I had hundreds of thousands of followers on all of my platforms. And I had arguably the most viral successful political video of 2018. And I'd built a thriving movement using social media. I mean, everybody knew what walk away was and was seeing these videos and sharing them. And so I'm like, I'm not invited to the the social media influencer summit, but like right. I created a movement using social media. Like I don't, and and then there were a number of other events. Um, one thing that I just thought was so hurtful and weird was the RNC convention in uh, 2020. Um, I got reached out to by people within the campaign who said, you know, we love Walkaway, we love what you're doing. And um, would you be able to find us some people in your movement who uh, voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, but we're now going to vote for Trump? We want to do a video that we're going to play for the RNC convention using walkaway people who you know voted for Hillary and now we're going to vote for Trump. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I can totally do that. And I said, you know, please give me a couple of weeks because. I want to be sure that I find the very best people for you, and it's going to be a lot of work. I'm going to have to go through and watch tons and tons of videos, and then after I watch the videos, I'm going to have to find a way to contact these people, and after I find a way to contact them, I'm going to have to call them and interview. You know, I'm not going to send them a bunch of crazies. Uh, you know, not that there's like walk away crazies, but you know what I mean. Like I want to make sure that sure. I'm sending like the the very best people, and so I did that. I spent weeks uh, going through videos. Um, then finding contact for these people, then interviewing them on the phone, and then making sure that they understood what was being asked of them and, and that they were willing participants, and then providing spreadsheets to the people in the campaign. And I did all of that, and they loved all of the people that I submitted to them. So they chose something like eight or nine or ten of these people and flew them to Florida and shot a video with them, and then ultimately ended up showing that video at the RNC convention. But in the end, after all of that, they invited all of those people to, that I submitted to the RNC convention and they didn't invite me. Brandon, before we move on, that is just so typical, right? I know Liz is like fuming. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. I'm not surprised. So can I, can I, can I tell you one more thing? Yes. So I did end up attending the RNC convention but it was as a plus one 
to one of the people that I submitted for their for this video. So what one of these people, everyone that they invited that I submitted to them was allowed to take a plus one. So I went as a plus one to one of the people that I submitted. Unbelievable. I mean, no, it is believable because you touched on two things before we get on to January 6th. The disconnect between the base of the party, the state and local level, township level, what is important to the base, what energizes the base and why you were a celebrity among the rank and file. And then radio silence in the leadership because they just are so disconnected intentionally for the most part from what the base wants, what the base prioritizes. And so there's that. But also Liz and I have talked about this. Liz knows it probably more than I do. Um, the the loyalty or the how would you uh, reciprocity between Trump and his team and people who have really put themselves out there either to defend him or boost him or whatever just is not there. It's always just the same people, like you're saying, who get the attention. You know, he will sit down with New York Times reporters or, you know, goofballs like Bob Woodward. But, you know, people like us, me and Liz are even American greatness. There there's nothing. And so. It's a real loyalty problem. Um, and so, Liz, I know you probably want to jump in here with yeah, Brandon, you're too. not. It, this is Liz. Brandon, you're not alone. I mean, this is a common thing with the the RNC, especially these people don't really know what they're doing. They think it's like a social club and it's like a table at a high school gymnasium for lunch, you know, where all the cool kids are at the table. Right. Um, so that's the RNC. And, you know, we saw the same thing with the Trump has a strange loyalty to people. And, you know, Maggie Haberman was getting phone calls, you know, every night from Trump for years and stabbing him in the back. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who who just in the 2016 campaign put put themselves out there locally where they were living in their states and their cities, came out, supported him at a personal and social cost. And then when it came time to get into the administration, you know, it was like, don't call us, we'll call you. So, you know, what you experience is sadly typ typical. And it speaks to the sad state of the party and the movement as a whole. So anyway, go ahead. Well, no, that's I, I'm I'm I, no, I'm just kind of listening and taking it all in. I mean, there. I don't I I literally don't know to what degree it's the people around him or or who it actually is, because I still, after everything, believe in my gut that he actually likes me. And I, I do believe that. And I think that he believes there's value in what I have done and what I do. And um, and I don't think that he knows that. Uh, I mean, that's just my belief is that he, I think he doesn't know that um, that there are like gatekeepers around him who are preventing him from meeting amazing people who are. Uh, making an impact and making a difference. I mean, because, you know, if 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 there are, say, events at the White House or events at Mar-a-Lago or whatever, and it, some of them would seem like a no brainer that I would be invited to. Um, he, certainly he's not coming to these events and going, where's Brandon Strzok? Where's Brandon Strzok? Oh, he, he must have had a <laughs> conflict and not been able to come. Like, I get it. Like, I, he's not thinking those thoughts. And like, I get that. But the problem is somebody is. Somebody is somebody who's making those guest lists and making those decisions uh, is making 
a conscious choice because I do not believe that my name hasn't come up numerous times and somebody is saying, no, put him on the no list. Like I, that I absolutely believe. And I'm not sure why or what the, well, actually I, I have a pretty good idea why, because I believe that uh, it's just a very competitive environment. And my belief is that there are a lot of people in very powerful positions and gatekeeper like positions who are not talented, who are not good at their jobs, who Mm -hmm. don't know what they're doing. And the last thing on earth these people want is for people who are good at their jobs and who are effective to get close to the president, because then the contrast and compare is going to be, I think, kind of glaringly obvious. And, um, you know, another example, too, and again, I want to make clear, I don't blame President Trump for this. It's I, I, I would bet he has no idea whatsoever. But uh, months before there were just so many things about that. OK, so months before the 2020 election, they rolled out a Trump LGBT coalition. Now, first of all, it was way too late. I, I think that they did it in the month of September yeah, I mean, I, it couldn't have been more. It could not have been more than three months before the election, but it, it it probably was closer to two months before the election. First of all, I can tell you from experience of all the people who hate Republicans and hate Trump, there is no one more rabid and mentally deranged than the LGBT community in their <laughs> hatred for Trump and Republicans. Mm-hmm. You are not going to win people over in two months. It is not going to happen. Like this is something that has to be chipped away at for years, which is what I was doing. I mean, I spent years traveling the country doing walkaway LGBT town halls. And I had this amazing uh, group of speakers and walkaway people like uh, Blair White and Mike Harlow and uh, like a number of different people. We traveled all over the country going into the LGBT communities and doing these events where people could show up, they could debate us, uh, they could ask questions. We did voter registration at all of these events. And lo and behold, in the 2020 election, what we found is that the LGBT vote for Trump doubled. Double. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's unheard of. And yes, yeah. I am sitting here today taking a huge uh, piece of the credit for yes. that shift and that change. You but should. They, they rolled out this Trump LGBT coalition, and I wasn't asked to be a part of it. Mm. And neither, Who rolled it out? I, I don't honestly know. I mean, it was done by someone in the campaign, but the head of it, I mean, I don't, the, the person that they were clearly trying to kind of portray as like the, 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 the leader of it or whatever was Rick Grinnell. Rick Grinnell. Right. Yeah. And then besides Rick Grinnell, I mean, there, I'm not trying to be, I'm not being catty. Like I, I really honestly am not. I right. mean, there were a number of other people that of course people would know who that is. Um, but there were like a couple of dozen people on there that like I was just reading the names and I'm like, who are these people? And I, and I do think that a, a good amount of them were um, just donors who happened to be LGBT people uh, and ended up getting put on this kind of advisory board or, you know, is essentially what it was. But I'm like, my God, I mean, there when you you ask any Republican who are the hardest working and most effective gay Republicans who are out there registering voters, changing minds, changing hearts, waking people up to whatever. I'm going to be on that list. That's Scott right. Pressler is going to be on that list. Like people right. So it, it just it, it didn't even make any sense. And then they did it like months before the election. And I was like, 
why didn't you do this two years ago? And okay. what are you going to do? It, yeah. Brandon, this is Liz. Let me make you feel a little bit better and tell you that this has nothing to do with how good you are at what you do. This has to do with people around Trump wanting to maintain power and influence. And that means that they put in their buddies um, and their the people that they can control in those positions. And you're obviously entrepreneurial. You're spirited. You're a threat to the people who want to maintain power and influence with the president. And that is why you are excluded. And this is many people. This is every many people's stories, but it has absolutely nothing to do with how good you are at what you do, other than to say that you're too good for people close to the president not to feel threatened. So that's that's what's going. That's what went on. That's what went on. I absolutely agree with you on all of that. And it's it's funny because I probably some of these people in like, you know, supreme leadership positions in the RNC uh, there. I, look, I've dealt with most of the personalities in the political movement. Uh, people are very difficult in this world. I mean, even people that I've you know brought to my events just to be speakers or tried to do some sort of collaborative event with whatever uh people are very touchy they're egotistical they're divas they're difficult and so probably a, a lot of people develop a complex and just assume everybody's like that and then you've got someone like myself who i you know i think that my profile kind of skyrocketed i mean like i said it was literally six weeks after launching my video that i was on fox news every day and then people started seeing me everywhere and everywhere and I'm sure for people who didn't know me, they're probably like, oh, my God, this guy is probably just an ego freight train. And like, let's not even get anywhere near him. When in fact, it's really honestly, I have um, I think that I'm pretty good at maintaining both a leadership personality and a collaborator personality when necessary. So, I mean, if anybody, say, at the RNC or anything had ever come to me and said, look, we want to, you know, kind of work together on a, a project or an initiative or collaborate with you, but we need you to be. You know, this isn't about you. It's not about walk away. We need I would say, hey, tell me what to do. Tell me where to show up and where to be. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you some tips and ideas if you want them, because I do think I'm pretty good at marketing and getting a message out and 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 getting people's attention. Uh, but even if they said we don't want that, I would have been like, OK, just tell me where to show up and lend my voice. I'm happy to do it. But uh, nothing. And it, it was just crazy to me because I thought like you asked earlier, Julie. Did I have a following? Did I have? No. I mean, I started all of this with no following, no money, no money. I had I didn't have any donors. I myself was a struggling hairstylist. I had three hundred dollars in my savings account. I had no political contacts. I had no zero media contacts. None. I, there Not a single reporter in my phone, anything. And organically, oh, this all just like exploded because I think that I created an idea that was incredible and sorely needed and that the public really loved and latched onto and wanted so desperately. And I think that I did it in a way that was very appealing to people. And again, in the, the marketing, not to mention how tenacious I am and relentless I am about working and working and work. I'll, I'll never stop working to try to reach as many people as I possibly can. And one would think that somebody in a position of power would watch what I'm doing and go, hmm, maybe there's some talent here. M maybe we should call this person and see how we can incorporate this into the greater good. 
because there might be something happening here that we want to be paying attention to. But no, it kind of seemed like how can we shut as many doors as possible? How can we keep him away? How can we how can we make sure that this doesn't get any bigger than we wanted to get? It's it's crazy. But I mean, that was honestly my experience. Okay, so let's go to because your story after January 6th is just wild. And I know, um, you know, our listeners are going to want to hear about this. So fast forward to January 6th, why you were there and what happened that day. Well, I was in D.C. on January 6th because I had gotten a a request or an offer to be a speaker at the Capitol after the event at the Ellipse. And as it was uh, explained to me at the time that there was going to be this this primary event at the the Ellipse, several people were going to speak and Trump was going to speak. And even honestly, people were telling me that I might be speaking at the Ellipse, but it was just so – wishy-washy and back and forth and it's like you are you're not you are you're not you know and i I was like okay whatever and then after the ellipse event that we would march to the capitol everyone would march to the capitol and then there was going to be a second event with lots of speakers nothing about this sounded unusual to me because with walk away we've done numerous marches on washington and that's how we always do it we have a pre-rally we have a march and then the main event Uh, although this would be kind of backwards main event march And then kind of like the secondary rally. And so it it sounded totally normal to me. And when I was sitting there at the ellipse, um, you know, I had an amazing seat. I was sitting there watching. We watched everyone speak, watched the president speak. And I was there until the very end and listened to President President Trump quite clearly say that we were going to march peacefully to the Capitol and peacefully assemble. And everything sounded perfectly normal to me about all of this. Now, because there were so many people there, I ended up being one of the very last people who was able to get out of the ellipse, which and it took a long time. I mean, I think I was stuck in there for probably an hour before I was finally able to get out of those grounds. And by then, my hired I had hired two security agents and they told me uh, they were like, it's too uh, I don't want to use the word dangerous because of what obviously we're talking about. But they just felt like I would be safer if I didn't do the march, you know, they were saying there's hundreds of thousands of people. You're going to get mobbed. You're not going to be able to get through. You're not going to be able to get there. So they said you have to go on the D.C. Metro. And I was really disappointed because I love mixing with the people like I love it. I love, you know, chanting and chanting into megaphones and getting everybody all excited and riled up. And so I was super disappointed uh, that they were telling me that I couldn't do that. But I knew I had to listen to them. So. I got on the D.C. Metro and we were heading that direction. And as we were getting close to our stop, I started getting uh, text messages from a couple of people who were at home uh, watching on. I'm assuming they were watching on television and they were saying, like, you know, we're hearing that people are going inside. And I didn't really know or understand what that meant. But I can tell you that the first thing that flashed in my mind were the images of all of those times that left-wing protesters had gone inside of government buildings to protest, like when the women went inside and were shouting during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, or when Alyssa Milano was pounding on senator doors with a group of women behind her telling them, like, come out, we want to talk to you, we want to, you know. And again, I feel like this is so touchy to talk about because for people who hate me, 
who hate Trump supporters and who want to portray this as literally the worst thing that ever happened in American history. I feel like they're looking for any little words I might use to be like, oh, he's he's excusing the violence. I'm not excusing the violence. I I unabashedly condemn all of the violence that took place on that day. However, in my mind, when I heard that, what I thought was that some people and I didn't know how many I didn't know if it was two or five or 12 or what I thought that people were going inside the building to to either hold their signs or to or to just be like, we want an audit. We want an audit, you know, something like that. And I, I, I just assumed they would be if they if if they were in an area where they weren't allowed to be, they'd be pushed out. I mean, that in my mind is like I was like, oh, people are going inside to, like, you know, make some noise. Sure. And. So I started walking toward the Capitol and I was approaching from the east side and uh, I'm trying to make this a point in every interview I do to 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 uh, paint a little nuance here because it's sorely lacking. And on behalf of the entire world, I want to say thank you, Julie Kelly, for your tireless, relentless reporting and, and you know, attempts to kind of set the record straight on this issue because you're obviously one of the only people doing it and the primary voice who's doing it, but it has been an epic, you're welcome and you deserve it, but it has been an epic fail on behalf of the, the, the majority of the conservative media, the ways that they've allowed this narrative to just come, just completely lose control of, of the narrative of January 6th. And so there's no nuance anymore. There, there's no like context for any, any, any of these stories. So a lot of people don't know, including people on our side, who probably the only thing that they think is, you know, who's Ray Epps and was the FBI involved? And okay, that's great. Those are interesting questions. But in addition to those two things, uh, another thing for people to consider is that there are four sides to the Capitol building. North, mm-hmm. South, West, and East. And the majority, as far as I know, if and possibly exclusively, all of the violence that was taking place on the day, window smashing, wall scaling, uh, you know, people, you know, kind of violently breaching or, or crawling, that was happening on the West side of the building. Correct. For people who were on the North and South and East sides, I can't speak on behalf of every person who was there, but I can speak on behalf of myself I didn't witness anyone smashing a window or scaling a wall or or, you know, beating the hell out of somebody or like I I just that simply was not happening where I was. Mm-hmm. But as I was approaching on the east side, I began filming a video. I was about what, three blocks. Brandon, what time was that when you started arriving at the east side? What time do you recall? Well, I know that I I think I started shooting my video around two thirty five. OK. So you so you arrived the first window actually that was smashed was at 213 by Dominic Pizzola and that was on the east side of the Capitol. But you would not have seen that. Um, But to your point, the majority of the violence, of course, perpetrated by police mostly was on the west side. And that's where all the scaffolding was for the inauguration. And so that created all those optics of people climbing the scaffolding, et cetera. But you're right. That's where most of the confrontations between protesters and police were on the west side. The east side, you would have arrived after Dominic Pozzola smashed that one window. So you wouldn't have really seen any of that. I just want to clarify for people the timeline's super important. 
Uh, yeah, it is important. And um, I guess to be clear, you're the first person to tell me that. Uh, and I didn't see any broken windows or anything that day. So it's not even like I arrived after the fact and witnessed that. Uh, this is actually the first time hearing of that. And that's good. I, I, I don't like I'm glad to be corrected and have that information. But again, none of that was taking place when I got there. Exactly. And, right. Right. And so but I started shooting my video, I'd say around 235 because I'm it took I sh I started shooting like three blocks away and I just took one long continuous shot in this video. And so I don't think that I got to the steps on the east side until about 240, maybe 241. And um, I did an interview with Mark Levin a week or two ago. It's available on his YouTube channel, um, Levin TV YouTube channel, and I would highly suggest that people check it out because in this interview, he actually plays my video that I shot, and we kind of go through it moment by moment, and the government narrative against me was uh, pretty extreme, and, and I felt like not exactly in keeping with what my video actually shows. Um, but what people will notice when they watch my video is that as I'm entering the grounds on the east side, everything is very calm. And there are people scattered everywhere, by the way. So the, the, the lawn on the east side is huge, huge. It's very expansive. And there are people kind of stationed all over the lawn in these little kind of clusters and groups. And they're talking with each other some people there I, there's uh in my video you see uh someone riding a bike you see a woman pushing her baby in a stroller people are standing around talking they're just sort of milling about and there are in my video no police officers on the grounds telling people to stay out don't come here this is forbidden that's right there are no closed barricades in my video right. none and this is clearly visible if you watch it so the sidewalk that i'm watching that i'm walking on is completely open and there is bike rack off to the sides, but the sidewalk, which and it, we're not talking about a skinny sidewalk, a huge, almost like a driveway, like the, you could drive a car on, uh, is completely open. And that sidewalk just leads into the crowd of thousands of people that were standing there. And so I walked on the sidewalk and into this crowd of people. And, uh, and then I looked up at the top of the stairs and I could see, so in my video, you see at the top of the stairs, a man holding his hat in his hand, and he's shouting down to the people below and motioning up with his hat and saying, they've opened the doors. We're going in. They're letting us in. We're going in. Hmm. And and so I walked up the stairs on the east side, and there were the doors were wide open. There were two large metal doors on the east side, which were completely open. This is in my video. And there were, I'd say, several hundred people standing there, and some people were trying to walk in, and some people were just standing there. And I held my camera fully above my head and pointed it down toward the door so that it could see things that my eyes could not see. And I just sat there and I filmed for about eight minutes. And, you know, the judge in my case um, was – she she actually made a really good point uh, because I – you know, I have felt so defensive over the last year because basically the left wing media portrayal of me and my involvement. Again, there's no nuance. They just show images of stuff that happened on the West Side and like the most egregious acts of violence. And then they're like, and Brandon Strzok was a part of that. Right. And, you know, and so 
I've been so defensive about that, that for the last year, anytime that I've ever talked about it, I'm like, all I saw were open doors and people walking inside. That's all I saw. That's all I saw. And the judge in my case, basically her position was kind of like, you're acting like it's fine that people went inside the Capitol. Like you're acting like it's no big deal. And I actually had to reflect back on that for a couple of days after my sentencing and be like, okay, I actually really get that. I actually really get where she's coming from because I've been coming from this place of defensiveness. Like all I saw was people going in the Capitol through an open door. I mean, like, why am I being persecuted for this? You know, whatever. And at the end of the day, that's a crime. And so if, you know, if they're going to make the decision to prosecute those crimes, even though they, of course, don't in other circumstances, prosecute the same crime. But in this case, they are choosing to prosecute that crime. So I guess I just want to be clear that when I'm saying this, what I'm not trying to do is excuse the fact that people went inside the Capitol. I'm just trying to say, please don't paint me as a domestic terrorist and an insurrectionist. When I stood outside of the building, I never went inside of the building. I filmed some people choosing to walk through an open door for eight minutes and then a man came outside of the Capitol and got on a bullhorn and and he announced on the bullhorn, everyone's cleared the building. They've cleared Congress. Turn around, clear out, clear out. And at that moment, I immediately turned around and I told the people that were behind me, I said, they want you to clear out, clear out. And then I walked down the stairs and then I stayed on the outer Capitol grounds for 20, 30 minutes. And I just interviewed people, you know, why are you here? What did you see? Um, you know, and some people had seen some pretty terrible things. I mean, at one point I was interviewing somebody and a couple of guys started shouting. They just shot a woman. They shot a woman. They shot a woman in the face. And so I interviewed a couple of people who witnessed, I think, Ashley Babbitt's shooting. Right. Um, but that was it. And then I went back to my hotel and I uploaded my original video that it was about a 10 minute video of me walking onto the grounds and standing outside on the east side steps and filming the open doors. And I kind of said, you know, this is what I witnessed today at the Capitol. And it was an hour or two after I posted that video on Twitter that I started I turned on the news and I started to see all of the things that had happened on the west side of the building and that this was much bigger than what I had witnessed and and my understanding of the situation. So at that point, I, I started to feel kind of embarrassed and kind of ashamed that I had posted this, not because I thought, I, I didn't think like, oh my God, they're gonna come after me criminally. I just thought this makes it seem like I condone whatever was going on on the other side because people are not going to understand that I wasn't on the other side, but I was on a different side. And I also still don't know all the facts of this. Like, I don't know who's doing that. I don't know why they're doing it. I don't know how bad it got. I don't. So I just took the video down and I took my post down. Literally, this is like an hour and a half to two hours after I posted them. I took them down. And then the next day I got on YouTube and I made a live video for my audience explaining what I had seen, which is exactly what I just described for you. I explained why I posted the video and then I explained why I took the video down. And I honestly thought that that was the end of it. I just thought, okay, this is all unfortunate, but I'm moving on with my life. And then it was <laughs> two and a half, yeah, two and a half weeks later uh, on Monday, uh, January 25th, uh, an FBI SWAT team came to my apartment in the morning and uh, pound, banging, pounding on my door. And uh, I went running to the door and opened it. And there were, I'd say, eight or nine agents on the other side in SWAT gear. Within 30 seconds, I was turned around and handcuffed. 
and uh, presented with a search warrant. Uh, and they told me that they were taking me to jail on multiple felony charges. And a team of agents came inside and started stripping my apartment of my computer, my phone, uh, my tablets, my hard drives, my thumb drives, my cameras. I mean, electronic equipment, clothing, you name it. And the other agents took me downstairs, put me in a black car and took me to jail where I sat in a cell 24 hours a day, locked in a cell for several days. And that and that was just the beginning. <laughs> it certainly was. Um, so this is a story for people who uh, this is a story I've heard over and over and over of what this FBI did pre-dawn raids with armed agents pointing rifles at elderly women, at children, their homes ransacked before they even will turn over uh, a search warrant to prove that they had a right to be there. You know, SWAT teams with vehicles, with battering rams, knocking down the front door of people's homes to terrorize them, terrorize the neighborhood, cops outside with bullhorns, you know, so the whole neighborhood hears, come out with your hands up, et cetera. Um, so this is what happened to you. But you weren't, what, were you charged with felonies? Yes. Um, yeah. And, and what you just described is part to it's also part of what to me is just so crazy and confusing to me about my case, because my case was a little unusual in that, well, it was unusual in the fact that I didn't go inside the Capitol and they never thought that I did, by the way. It's not like they were trying to figure out whether or not I went inside the Capitol. They told me from the beginning, we know you didn't go inside. Uh, but when I posted that video on Twitter and I took it down, but it had already been copied numerous times by Twitter trolls who then began reposting it, reposting it, reposting it and tagging the FBI. And then eventually that got the attention of one of my family members. And so one of my family members called the FBI and turned me in and uh, sent the FBI a link to my video. Wow. And what happened next was that the FBI went to a judge and requested an emergency order to have me arrested based off of that video. And so this was a little unusual because there was never evidence presented to a grand jury. I was never indicted. Never was I indicted on any charges whatsoever. This was just I was picked up on a complaint, which means that the FBI went to a judge and, and requested an order to emergency order to have me arrested. And that was granted. And then the FBI came to my house. So to me, what is so strange is they knew from the very beginning and they told me from the very beginning, we know you didn't uh, engage in any violence or vandalism or theft or destruction. We know you didn't go inside the Capitol, but it didn't begin with the FBI coming to my house, knocking on my door and saying, we'd like to ask you some questions. Uh, we, why don't you why don't we sit down and watch your video together? And we'd like you to answer a few questions for us. Why were you there? Is that you? Is that your voice? Is that none of that? It was just boom, 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 handcuffed, taken to jail. I sat in jail in 24 hour lockdown for days. My release was finally ordered after two days. And then I got out and I was able to talk to my attorney at that point. And then my attorney told me that I was facing two felonies and a misdemeanor and that felony one was knowingly occupying restricted grounds. Uh, felony two was impeding an officer in the line of duty. And the misdemeanor was disorderly conduct on capital grounds. Restricted grounds. R restricted grounds, yes. And um, and so uh, th the thing with the police officer, which I was 
pretty confused about that charge because I thought, like, are they accusing me of assaulting an officer? Like, I don't understand. And so it was explained to me that um, in my video, there's a moment where one police officer comes outside of the building um, and it takes the I think the moment lasts about six seconds. Um, now, bear in mind, I, I'm about 20 feet away from the open doors of the Capitol. And this is happening in the doorway of the Capitol. The, the officer comes to the doorway. Somebody near the doorway grabs his plastic shield out of his hand. And people in the crowd start chanting, you know, take it, take a shield, take it, you know. And uh, the accusation against me is that I was encouraging the crowd to take this officer's shield. And so I got charged with a felony of impeding an officer in the line of duty. Ultimately, over the course of a year, they ended up dropping that charge and dropping the charge of uh, the felony charge of occupying restricted grounds. But they stuck with the misdemeanor charge. So, I mean, I know people's jaws are dropping. Um at hearing this, but we haven't even gotten to the most jaw-dropping part, which is your placement on a special TSA list and what mm -hmm. you had to go through when you attempted to travel as your case was being you know, prosecuted or your attorney was working with DOJ for your ultimate plea deal. So explain to people what happened, how you first realized you were on this list and what happened to you when you had to travel. Cause you would call, I mean, you were telling me that, and it was just, just, I couldn't believe it at the time. Yeah. So, but I want you to, to talk about that, uh, that torture. Sure. So, um, when I first got out of jail, um, I was, I, I'd say severely traumatized by the experience of the FBI raid, the experience of being in the lockdown in the jail. And of course, being all over the news labeled a terrorist and an insurrectionist. And I honestly was just trying to kind of get through the days because I couldn't sleep at night anymore. I was like terrified that the FBI was going to come back again. And I was literally just trying to cope. And, but it, it's like the, the, um, the torment just would not stop because it seemed like every time I went to my mailbox, I would open it and there would be another letter from the government or another letter from some agency telling me that I'm banned from this or restricted from this or just some other level of my life being crushed in some way. And so it was probably a week or two after I got out of jail that I got a letter telling me first that my TSA pre-check status, which I've had for years without incident, was revoked. And that I was no longer considered a low risk traveler. And that in itself was, uh, you know, it's just kind of hurtful to read these things. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm considered too dangerous now to get on an airplane. Like, what are you talking about? And so I went to the airport uh, several months after getting out of jail. It was the first time I was taking a business trip. And when I got to the airport, I tried to check in. It was a Delta flight. And I went to the Delta ticketing agent, and the first thing that happened was that the agent looked at their computer as they're trying to check me in, and they're like, well, this is very strange. And I, I said, what? And they said, well, I have a message here that I need to call corporate headquarters. And I'm just <laughs> – but my heart is starting to pound, and my stomach is starting to turn, and I'm just going, oh, my God, oh, my God, something's really wrong. So this agent gets on the phone. And I'm not exaggerating any of this. And by the way, what I'm about to tell you, this experience that I'm about to tell you happens now every single time I travel because I have been placed on this list. It's not it's not random. It's not occasionally. It's every time I take a flight now. So the agent had to call the airline's headquarters and then the airline's headquarters had to call TSA. 
And then it becomes a three-way phone call between those three people, the agent, the headquarters, and the TSA. And that phone call takes 35 minutes to complete. And during that 35 minutes, you just have to stand there quietly staring at this person. And the only thing that happens on my end is that after about 30 minutes, they turn to me and they say, are you traveling with firearms? And I say, no, I'm not traveling with firearms. And they say, okay. And so after about 35 minutes, they complete the phone call. They print out my boarding pass. They tag my bag. And then my boarding pass has a designation on it now that says SSSS or quad S. It's in giant red letters, four letters S. Okay. So then I go up to security. And when they scan my boarding pass at security, there's a red light that shines and a sound that goes, Arr! <laughs> and, the t and the person oh is God. alerted then that I have a quad S status. So they will tell me at that point, you need to wait here while our supervisor arrives. So then I have to stand off to the side, wait for a TSA supervisor to come. The TSA supervisor will read off this long uh, spiel about everything that they're about to do to me. And they say that I have two options. If I don't uh, agree to submit to what they're about to do, I can either turn around and go home. Or if I want to proceed with travel, I have to agree to all of these conditions. So, of course, I agree. So they bring me in then to the TSA area and they shut off. Now, again, this is every time that I travel. They shut down an entire security lane just for me. And they have about eight or nine agents come to this security lane. And this begins this intensive security screening process that I have to go through in which it begins with me having to walk through the metal detector twice. I have to go in and out of the metal detector. Then I have to go through the body scanner. Sometimes I have to do that more than once, go through the body scanner. And while this is happening, the other agents that are there, are they bring a camera and they're taking pictures of my boarding pass uh, passes, pictures of my IDs. Um, and then other agents are going through all of the items in my bag. And I mean, literally every single item in my bag gets pulled out it gets swabbed with a piece of cloth, and then that cloth gets put into a machine to test for explosive materials. While that's happening, there are a couple of other agents who have me off to the side, and they're giving me a full body pat down. And I don't mean like pat, 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 pat. I mean they literally put on gloves, and they put their hands inside my pants. They touch my genitals. They touch my backside. Oh, I mean they, they aggressively – pat down every area of my body. And they tell you uh, uh, before, you know, they say, we're going to have to touch your genitals. We're going to have to touch your buttocks. We're going to have to touch. Dear and, God. Yeah, and you're only, and this is happening in front of everybody, by the way, at, at this. Right. Security. It's public humiliation. That's the point of it. Correct. So then when they get done with all of that, they swab my hands. Uh, they swab my feet because they, I have to take off my shoes and socks and they, you know, they, they grab and touch my feet and then they swab my feet and they swab my hands and they test it. And then when everything is finally over, which takes about an hour, um, I walk to my gate. And, you know, so if I'm walking to gate one, um, they have a team of agents follow me to to the gate and everywhere that I go. And then if I sit down at gate one and I pop in my headphones and I'm watching something on Netflix, they station. And, and for just so your listeners know, I have pictures and videos of multiple times that I've traveled over the last year to validate everything that I'm saying. I can back this all up with video and, and photographic evidence. As I'm sitting there at the gate, they station TSA agents all around. So they usually have one in all four corners around me. And then they have anywhere from three to five kind of 
sp- uh, sporadically stationed where, around where I am. And then they have a couple right there at the boarding gate and they bring a special piece of equipment to the gate, a machine. And that machine is, again, an explosive material scanner. So when it's finally time to board the plane and the airline announces, you know, we're boarding first class, we're boarding cabin, we're being, whatever, people start lining up. And as when it's my turn, I have to be pulled aside again. I have to do a full body pat down, the exact same full body pat down once again, but this time it's in front of all of the passengers as we're boarding the plane. And then once again, they take all of the items out of my bag and swab them and test them once again for explosive materials. Okay, Brandon, this is Liz. Let me just interrupt and ask this question. Well, I would tell you that if I was on a plane with you and this was performed in front of me, I would not be getting on the plane because I would be worry you know what i i mean has anyone just been like we're not getting on the plane with this guy i don't know (laughs) that's exactly what i that's exactly what i was about to say is that the the passengers are terrified i mean they're watching this and they're just because no one's ever seen anything like this before and then so they have to spend the rest of their plane ride with me wondering if i'm going to blow the airplane up and you know god God forbid i have to you know lean down and tie my shoe during the flight you know people are like ding Um, but and then if i have a connecting flight which you know now in the age of covid there are you know very few direct flights like there used to be they do it all again at the connecting gate so i i get off the first airplane go to the connecting gate and once again the full body pat down the explosive material so it's it's just unbelievable but here's one thing i will say because i think this is important the tsa agents hate it they hate it. Like I, I've I've flown so many times over the last year, at least uh, twenty times. I've had to, you know, because I I fly a lot for my work, and the, only in the only in the Denver airport would I say that the there were a couple of TSA agents that were really jerks and really treated me badly. But all over the country, these TSA agents are like, this is ridiculous. Like th- this is the dumbest thing we've ever had to do. And there, one of my favorite experiences was at LAX. Um, you know, you're picturing Los Angeles, very liberal city, very leftist city. And the head of TSA uh, in LAX, the day I was there, was a black woman. And you know, I don't want to profile, but probably not a Trump supporter. You know, I don't know, I don't know for sure, but you know, if I had to guess, probably not. And she was kind of like guiding me through all of this screening and all of this craziness. And she was just like, why are they doing this to you? And I said, you know, I was like, I was on the Capitol steps on January 6th. I didn't go inside the building, but I was on the Capitol grounds and I'm facing a misdemeanor charge for being on the Capitol grounds. And she looked at me like I, like there were like arms growing out of my head. And she goes, do you know, that we have to transport murderers all the time. She was like, we have to transport mass murderers from one prison to another prison. And she goes, we don't do this for them. Oh, wow. She, she was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever had to do at work. And I was like, well, you're welcome. So. And Brandon, just to say, and you've got such a great sense of humor. I mean, I know even when I was talking to you as this was happening, even though you were mortified, you still, you know, tried to keep like, a, it was just so surreal. I'm sure for you, but you are not alone. There are a lot of January 6th defendants, including people facing no violent charges who are also on these lists. So it is a public humiliation and shame uh, campaign by the Biden regime to, you know, to do this 
to you guys. So but yeah. this story, when I just it's just completely mind blowing. Well, let's let's take a moment to reiterate that I'm one of those people who's not facing violent charge was not facing That's violent right. charges. I That's never right. was. I, I mean, that was even when they were charging me with felonies, uh, they weren't violent felonies. And then, then right. and then they ultimately dropped those charges. Um, but it's see, this is, again, this sort of like Twilight Zone experience that I'm going through, because on the one hand, I pled guilty to a class B nonviolent misdemeanor charge. But on the other hand, I'm considered to be a domestic terrorist and literally too dangerous to get on an airplane without like an hour and a half of intense screening because I might blow up an aircraft. So it's like, well, which is it? Like, am I am I a misdemeanor, a class B nonviolent misdemeanor you know, charged person or am I Timothy McVeigh? Like, you can't have it both ways, you know, like either. Either right. I need to be in prison for the rest of my life because that's how dangerous I am or like you can, you know what I mean? You can't put me on house arrest for three months and claim like this is one of the most dangerous people in our country. Which is it? Right. And that is the, the farcical part of all of this. And even a few judges have called this out. The prosecutors will comment, as you know, and portray whoever it is, someone pleading guilty finally to obstruction of an official proceeding, a nonviolent felony that is never used against political protesters. And a few judges will say, well, wait, you can't call this person a domestic terrorist, compare him to a domestic terrorist in a sentencing memo, but yet you're only pursuing him either for obstruction or my favorite, which is parading in the Capitol, which is the most plea deals the DOJ has managed to come up with. Um, But to your point, compare you to Timothy McVeigh. But look, our attorney general has compared you to Timothy McVeigh, Democratic lawmakers and the president and the, and president. the president. So let I want to emphasize this. Joe Biden, I don't call him the president, Joe Biden, <laughs> Merrick Garland, Kamala Harris, this entire regime has compared the four hours of January 6th to 9-11 to the Oklahoma City bombing, which Merrick Garland prosecuted, by the way, uh, Pearl Harbor absurd outlandish comparisons but the pretext of it is to compare like you just said you brandon strock to timothy mcveigh the people at the capitol that day even the ones who walked into the building allowed in with capitol police standing right there which we have video they are america's al-qaeda and then they treat you the same way Although if you guys were really Al Qaeda terrorists, you would have the ACLU and all sorts of left wing activist groups defending you and making sure that you are being treated fairly in the American justice system. But because you're not, you're a Trump supporter, you are subhuman terrorist scum. And so no one is speaking up on behalf of you and the 740 people now charged. So but who puts you on this list? Department of Homeland Security. Is that who puts you on this? list? I have a question, too. Yes, this is Liz. I have a question about this list, too. Have you reached out to any Congress people that might be able to contact, I, I think, I think it's DHS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who, who puts you on this list and maybe, maybe they can help. I mean, it, and I say this because it's, it's what a burden on our system that, that, that these yes. people have to go, like, what if there's a, actually a terrorist on your flight who's just getting like, Correct. Waved through and they're basically, you know, 
Yes. Doing a strip, te- you know, demanding you strip for them so they can make sure that you're, you know, a safe person. It's kind of scary. Correct. Actual terrorists, I'm sure, are like getting through airport security every day while they're dedicating these resources to me. Not to mention, I can't even imagine how expensive it is because I'm not exaggerating when I say that once I start going through, they dedicate eight or nine agents just to screening me and then to coming to my gate and stay like so surely they're having to pull in extra staff to actually do the screening or, or maybe not. Maybe just they're just kind of phoning it in with the screening while they're keeping an eye on me. I have no idea. But either way, this is I, I travel a lot and this is, you know, I think an enormous burden on resources that they're that they're dedicating to this. I mean, whatever they get out of it, I hope it's worth it to them because it's costing. I, I, I mean, I just can't even imagine how much money it's costing to do this, you know. Listen, well, they Julie, don't can care. I tell you something? Yes. Yes, sir. I did not know that we were going to go this long. My probation officer wants me to come give her a urine sample right now. <laughs> well, wow. she literally just texted me and said, I need to go to her office and give her a urine sample. Okay. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I think wanna... that is a perfect ending to what yeah, you okay. Okay. But I don't want this to be the end. Well, how can, what what can we do? We can, can have back you back on. Yeah, 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 because there, I, there's a lot more to talk about, and we I, I really want to talk about the civil suit. I mean, that's got to get out there. We've got to talk about this. All right, um, so Liz, what do you think? Can we have him back? I mean, we don't like to go longer just because then people we don't want anyone to lose interest. Can you can you come back next week and we could do part two? Uh huh. Okay. Honey, I'm on. I, I can't leave my house other than to go give urine to my probation officer. So, man, I, I, captive audience here, you've got me. Because we also, I also want to talk about what the judge was saying to you in your sentencing hearing, which I was listening to, which was also outrageous. But um, okay, we don't want you to get in bigger trouble than you already are. <laughs> this is exciting because you're our first part one, part two interview on Happy Hour. So you you now hold that that. Uh... That, it's a mini that, series. That, that award. Um, all right. Well, well right. thank you. Thank our audience for listening to us for happy hour. We will be back next week with part two with Brandon Strzok and January 6th. And thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to happy hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week.